Good morning. You know, I'm going to encourage you to use your bulletin this morning during the message. The passage is right there, and that's what we're going to teach on. We're going to work our way through it, and I think you're going to get the most out of it if you just, if you really see what's being said there. This is what God, God's Word says. Now, I'm going to expound on it, but this is really the important thing this morning, what's, what's right here. We're going to start a new book. Uh, we're going to start First Peter. Uh, Peter's writing to a group of Christians who are suffering. Uh, They've been persecuted. We don't know exactly in what ways, but they are suffering. Uh, Some may have had to leave their homes. Uh, They're living under the hostile government of Nero. The Apostle Paul either has been or is about to be beheaded at Rome by having his head cut off with a sword. And all of this persecution is on top of the ordinary cares and trials that they had that are common to all of us. I mean, they had trials and troubles in their life just like we do, but on top of this, they were being persecuted. So this is a book, Two Sufferers, and it's Four Sufferers. Uh, We're all different, but in one way we're all alike. We all know what it is like to suffer in some way, to some degree. We, we live in a world of heartbreak and shattered dreams and suffering of various kinds, as Peter says. But Peter has a message for us in our suffering. His message is that we have something that can overshadow our hurts and our disappointments and even our worst suffering. We have something that can overcome even persecution or being an outcast or being divorced or a bad day at the office or failing in some undertaking in which you really wanted to succeed or whatever trial you can think of. Peter has something for us that will overcome our trials. And this one thing is our salvation. Now, hopefully by the time that I get to the end of the the message, I will say that and your amens will be a bit louder than that. But the one thing that overcomes suffering is our salvation. Our salvation, your salvation, is capable of producing such optimism, such hope, such joy, that even in distress, we can greatly rejoice. Right here today, or right now today, as believers in Jesus Christ, we have much to rejoice in. We, we experience right now the, the, the fellowship with God. We experience fellowship with God. The Holy Spirit communes with us. We know and we experience the love of God. But the thing that Peter especially focuses on is, is the end of our salvation or where we're heading with our salvation. The things that are ahead of us, the, the massive future glory, the inheritance, the spiritual riches that are in store for us. And Peter says this is the hope that is able to generate present joy in your life. You know, and, and, and again, we taste now of the goodness of God every day and we see His blessings upon us. We experience now the goodness and the love of God and the riches of Christ. 
But it is, this is really only a foretaste, the Bible says. It is only a little bit. It is really nothing compared to, all, to, to the amazing experience that God has for us ahead. And Peter wants us to see the, this outcome of our salvation, where we're going with our salvation, what is out in front of us. He wants us to see that as the dominant perspective of our lives. The, this glory to come is to be so big to you. This glory that is coming is to be so big to us. It is not just, okay, I'll go to heaven when I die, but it sure is a depressing life now. No, we are to see all that is ahead of us as so grand, so glorious, that it affects us now. It affects us at the level of our heart. It affects us at the level of our emotions now. This future hope, infuses everything you do now to joy, or, or it is too. It is too. It is, it is the fuel, it is the fuel for your present optimism and joy, according to Peter. You know, it, very, very realistically, either, either all we can see is that life is a bummer and salvation seems very unreal or distant or we have before our mind and our heart and our eyes such riches and such blessing in our salvation that we rejoice greatly no matter what we are going through. And that's exactly what Peter tells us to do or he calls us to do. There is this sense, and it might need to be awakened, but there is this sense in the heart of every believer, that we are on the verge of something so wonderful. We, our lives, we are on the verge of something so wonderful, so glorious, that we live in constant anticipation of it. And do you have that? Do you have that this morning? And if if not, I invite you to come to Christ this morning. I invite you to open your eyes I invite the Spirit of God to give us revelation, to open the eyes of your heart, as, as the Bible says, to see these things. And if you are experiencing distress or trials, or just want to get your joy back, or just know that you need more joy in your life, Peter has some solid answers for you this morning. And Peter's... Uh, Peter's logic or his flow of logic, and I, I really like to be logical when I talk the scriptures. I don't know why it really helps me when I go through a message. But, but P, here's Peter's logic. He lists all these, these blessings. He's going to list them all out. And then at the end is the punchline. Okay? He lists all these blessings and he says, In this you greatly rejoice. So we're going to move through this. If you want to follow along in your Bible or bulletin, I think it would be helpful. He, he begins his letter by letting them know who it is from. All right, that's pretty basic. He begins the letter by letting them know who it is from. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. He lets his readers know this, that this letter comes to them with some serious authority behind it. It's from Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And then he tells them, who this letter is written to. He tells them this letter is written to God's elect. If you read that in your bulletin, you'll, just, you'll see that. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to 
God's elect. Or those chosen by God. So right from the beginning, he is, he is giving them, he is giving us something to rejoice in. And if you are a Christian, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if your faith is fixed on the Lord Jesus Christ, it is because ultimately, from God's perspective, he chose you. And Peter will go on to, to tell us or to assure us that we have this massive inheritance ahead of us that can never perish, never spoil or fade away. But he begins with assuring us that God chose us. And the certainty of your salvation began in the heart of the Father. The certainty of your salvation began in the heart of God before you were born. Your salvation had its beginning in God the Father. So in your struggles, in your suffering, in your hurts in this world, this is the foundation for your assurance and for your joy. So when you feel alone in your trials, when you feel like a reject, when you feel pathetic, when you feel unacceptable, when you wonder how God could love you, when you feel useless, when you feel so low, here are some very sweet words for you. You are the elect, those chosen by the Father from the beginning for salvation. This is one of the greatest and most mysterious wonders of salvation. It is one of the greatest comforts for you in all of Scripture. It is one of the sweetest messages you could ever hear. It is our assurance that God is for us. Paul said in Romans 8, who will bring a charge against God's elect? So being one whom God has chosen is proof that God is for you. He always has been. He always will. In this, in this, you can greatly rejoice. Now, you may remember a time, I hope you do, that you prayed that you prayed to receive Christ. You believed on Him. You confessed Jesus Christ as Lord and were baptized. But behind all of that, the Scripture reveals that God was the one who was after you. As Jesus said, you did not chose, choose me, but I chose you. 2 Corinthians 2.13, Paul wrote to the Thes- uh, Thessalonians. Uh, from the beginning, 2 Thessalonians 2.13, I'm not sure I said that right. From the beginning, God chose you to be saved or chose you for salvation. So, you are not who you are today in the Lord just by some random chance. God the Father wanted you and came after you and saved you. Paul tells them in the next verse that they were chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. This does not mean merely that God knew what you would do in advance. He He obviously does know that. But it means that God knew you in advance. The Father knew knew you in a personal and intimate way from before time began. And he loved you and chose you to make you his child. We studied the book of Jeremiah, or we are studying the book of Jeremiah with a group of men on Saturday mornings. And the very first thing, the very first thing that God told Jeremiah was this. Before you were formed in the womb, I knew you. 
Before you were born, I set you apart. You know, we used to sing uh, a song down at uh, our Des Moines Fellowship Church, uh, which was our church home before we started real life, that said, I was in his mind before the worlds were made. I was in his mind before earth's frame was laid, because he knew me, because he loved me. And being the elect or chosen of God is not just a theological concept. It is to be one of your richest spiritual blessings. Psalm 65, 4 says, How blessed is the one whom you choose and bring near to you. And that's how we ought to feel. How blessed we are. And you say, well, I can't understand how that can be, or I can't understand how that works with other verses in the Bible. Believe me, no one has ever been able to figure it all out, even those who think they have. It is something that you take in wonder and faith and let it bless your soul. I'm going to say that again, okay? I don't like preachers who repeat themselves, but it is something you take in wonder and faith and let it bless your soul. Verse 2 goes on, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, chosen according to God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and sprinkling by His blood. I'm not going to get off into the Trinity, but there you see the Father, the Spirit, and the Son, all at work in your salvation. The Father chooses you, the Spirit goes and gets you, and sets you apart from the world, and for God... And the end result is that you become obedient to Jesus Christ and your sins are covered by his blood. Now, this does not eliminate uh, your responsibility to repent of your sins and believe, but it does mean that God chose you for these things. Jesus said, no one comes to me unless the Father draws him. And if you do not know this relationship with God, or you're not sure that you know this kind of relationship with God, the invitation to you this morning is to come. The Bible says, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And Jesus said, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will not cast out. So if you want to come to him today... Come, come and believe and trust in Christ and turn, give your life over to him. Then someday down the road, you'll look back and you'll see that it was God the Father who was the one drawing you and saving you. And this is probably a very poor illustration, but it's one that's always stayed with me. It's helped me the most in this, is that... uh, there's, I, there's this picture of this, this, this great gr- gate or doorway into the entrance of ke- heaven. And over this doorway, as you're outside the kingdom of heaven, you look at it and it says, whosoever will may come. And then you walk through that doorway and you look at the other side and you say, see that you were chosen before the foundation of the world to belong to the Father. And that's, that's the best way I can explain it. It doesn't change the fact that the invitation is there, but once you get through and you look back, you'll find, you find 
that God chose you. You are God's elect. Now, right after Peter addresses us as as God's elect, he addresses us as strangers. That's kind of a strange, weird combination. Uh, You're God's elect, strangers in the world. Strangers in the world. So it's like it's like the the flip side of being the other side of the coin, if you will, of being God's elect is being strangers in the world. You see, to be chosen by God to belong to Him inherently puts you in an awkward position with the world. You know, Lissa sang this song this morning, the the cross before me, the world behind me. To be chosen by God automatically puts you in a position where you feel strangely out of place in this world. You, You are a stranger or an alien. You feel that you are not quite at home here. You feel yourself drawn to another world. You, find, you feel yourself drawn toward heaven and to another kingdom. And that's, that's why you cry out again like we sang, your kingdom come, your will be done. You're drawn to that other kingdom. And if you have these feelings, it's a confirmation that you are God's elect or chosen of God. Being, being strangers in the world is a condition that comes to us by the extreme privilege of being chosen of God for salvation. Now, Peter wrote to those who were scattered throughout these various Roman provinces. I'm not going to read them again. Mike did a wonderful job of pronouncing all of those. Great job, Mike. And so, But they were all provinces, Roman provinces, in and around modern-day Turkey. But the idea is that Peter was writing to people that were scattered. Uh, there, there was a few over here, there's a few over here, there's a few over there. They were not in the majority. They did not dominate the culture. Uh, they were scattered in all these different places like aliens and strangers. But even though they're scattered, even though they're in the minority, they belong to God. They are the elect of God. And that is the reason for them to rejoice. And that is the reason for us to rejoice. You may feel like when we leave church, I mean, we're all here together, but when you leave church, we're, we're scattered. We're in different neighborhoods, at different places of work. Sometimes you might feel quite alone as a believer. But you can rejoice no matter how uncomfortable you are in the world because you're chosen of God. Now, next Peter writes... Uh, grace and peace be yours in abundance. Just, you know, another thing to, to help these people who are suffering to rejoice. Uh, as an outcome of being chosen by the Father, you are in a position of grace and peace. You have the favor of God, the complete and complete peace with God. And you have the peace of God in you. And so this greeting if we want to call it a greeting, it seems to me a little more, more powerful than just, you know, just, hey, how you doing? But if, if this greeting is a wish that you would know and experience the grace and peace of God in the fullest way possible. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. And I don't know about you, but that's something I need to hear sometimes. You know, I just need to be blessed with those words. Read Grace to you. 
peace to you. You probably need to hear that. Grace to you this morning. Peace be to you. Peace be upon you and in you in the fullest possible measure. Be yours in abundance in Jesus Christ. I really think maybe we should, I don't want to get too far off track here, but I really think maybe we should rethink how we greet other Christians. Do we remind each other that we are God's elect? Do we remind each other that we are the chosen of, are chosen of God? Do we bless each other with grace and peace in the fullest measure? I think we could learn something from Peter and the other writers of Scripture. Uh, Jude Jude wrote, to those who have been called, who are loved by God the Father and kept by Jesus Christ. Man, wouldn't you like to get a greeting like that? Or consider John's greeting in 2 John, to the chosen lady and her children whom I love in the truth. Wouldn't you like that greeting? Especially ladies, to the chosen lady. No? Uh, these greetings point us to the blessedness of our standing with the Father. And they immediately increase our joy. They're designed, and, and Peter wrote this, he, he, he wrote this in order to increase their joy in the midst of suffering. So one application, might be a little bit of a sidetrack, but one application for you this morning is to let's find a way to increase each other's joy in the way we greet each other. And I'm going to put Pam on that assignment because she already already does such a great job. I mean, some of the things that she says to me when she greets me just send me away just sky high. I mean, she just blesses people the way she greets greets them and you know, I think we could I think we could could uh, learn from that. Now, Peter, um, he continues on with just more reasons to rejoice in our salvation. Verse 3 begins, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it might seem insensitive to tell people who are suffering to praise God. And it could be done in a way like that. But Peter does it because he knows that whatever these people have lost in their suffering is so small in comparison to all that they have in salvation. And he really sees life that way. So he can tell them, he can speak to suffering people, not in a flippant way or, hey, just, you know, get your, you know, get your head up and put a smile on your face, you know, stop being... No, no but he can, he can talk to people because he really, he really has a grasp on this. We can praise God in our suffering because he sees the, our, this, this glory of salvation as so big that he has no problem telling people to rejoice. Uh, Charles Spurgeon said, to lead the mind to praise God is one of the surest ways of uplifting it from depression. The wild beasts of anxiety and discontent which surround our campground in the wilderness will be driven away by the fire of our gratitude and the song of praise. Peter continues on with more about our salvation that we can rejoice in. He says, you have received the Father's mercy in His great mercy. So he says, praise be to God. In His great mercy, 
He has given us new birth. Just think about it. Just think about who, who we were, what we were. In our sin, in our separation, in our isolation from God, in our spiritual deadness, in our hopelessness, God showed us mercy. Instead of getting what we did deserve, we got mercy. In this, we are to greatly rejoice. You were given new birth. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth or caused us to be born again. As New American Standard and I think ESV say. What What God does, what God does when he saves you is so dramatic, it is so awesome, it is so utterly new, It results in such a different life. It results in such different relationships. It results in such a different future. It can only be described as being born again. Being born a second time. Being born again is a tremendous gift of God. God puts his own life in you. He puts his spirit in you. There you were. Just a person, just a man, just a woman, just a teenager, just a boy or girl. But you were just a human being with just biological life. And God comes now and puts his life within you. You have life from above. You're born from above. And the new birth alone qualifies you to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus said in John 3, unless one is born of God, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So it's a great, a great thing to be born again, and we are to greatly rejoice in that. If you're not sure, if you're here this morning, you're not sure that you have the new birth, that you are born again, ask God to save you and ask him to give you new life today. Next, Peter says, he's just ticking off the blessings that should increase our joy. You were born into a living hope or you were born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Peter's basically saying you were born into a life, as soon as you were born again, you were born into a life with with hope. You were born into a life with a magnificent future. It's like, it's like if, if, as a little baby, you wouldn't be conscious of this, but if, if, you, if you kind of imagine a little baby being conscious and a little baby is born into a family of great privilege. I've been reading a lot about the kings and queens of England, and I love history, but you know, if a little baby born into a family of great privilege with great destiny, that's what it's, that's what it's like being born into the family of God. You're born into it, and, and then immediately you have this fantastic future ahead of you. You have this destiny that is given by God. As soon as you're born again, you are immediately given a grand and glorious destiny. And because Jesus Christ is raised from the dead, our hope it is, is a living hope. It's not a dead hope. It's not a dead hope. Everything that you hope in in this world will end up fading away and 
there'll become a point where there will be a, where they will all all those hopes will be dead. But our hope is a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now the Bible uses the word hope in a couple of different ways that I think would be helpful for us to think about. Because really, in one sense, this is really what Peter is talking about. He's talking about hope. He's talking about having hope, a living hope, in the midst of suffering and trials. And hope is used in the Bible in two different, two different ways. Uh, hope is, is, first of all, an attitude of your heart. It's a quality in your heart. It's an outlook from your heart. Paul said, now remain faith, hope, and love. It's like hope is one of the three most important qualities in the Christian life. You cannot live your life well without living in hope. You know, the richest person in the world without hope is miserable. But if you are in the most humble or even the most hard circumstances and you have a living hope, you really have everything because your heart's doing okay. And that's really where we live life, in our heart, not in our outward circumstances. Hope is not wishing that something good may happen. It is knowing and rejoicing that something good is ahead. Good is ahead. And I, I'm going to talk about this a little bit later, but it's not just knowing. It's not just knowing the facts that these things are ahead. Hope is knowing and rejoicing in what is ahead of us. It is confidence. It is, it, is, it is confidence. It is living with an attitude of confidence that, so, that something good is ahead, that, that things are moving, that you are moving, that you are heading toward a good and glorious end. And, you know, John Powers, bless his heart, one of the things that I was so impressed with by him in his last weeks and months on this earth, every time I met with him, he expressed such confidence in the hope of heaven. He prayed for healing for him, but he expressed such confidence and hope in that. Hope is one of the best definitions of hope that, that I think of. I think of it all the time. Hope is spiritual optimism. And if I'm not optimistic, I'm really not living in hope. And I'm not talking about just optimistic that lunch is going to be good or something. I'm talking about this grand, this big picture that, hey, Things are good. We're on our way to heaven. It's okay. We've got a great future in front of us. It's spiritual optimism. So no matter what is going on today, you expect something so wonderful is ahead that it, that it affects your heart and your affections, your emotional outlook today. But hope is not only an attitude of the heart. It is, a, it is an object, objective reality. Okay? The Bible talks about our, our hope, that Christ is our hope. It talks about certain things being our hope. Uh, our hope is something, in that sense, that is not affected by feelings. It's a, it's a certain thing that's out in front of us. It's a, it's a great and wonderful reality that is ahead of us. Um, you know, I was thinking, I don't know if somebody, somebody has our bulletin from this morning. I guess I've got one here. Uh, it talks about this, waiting for our blessed hope. Okay? In our memory verse, in Titus, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Okay, that kind of hope, that's an objective reality. Our hope is the appearing of Jesus, Jesus Christ. So, the salvation to be revealed is our hope. 
And even though we don't realize it now or in our, in our experience, yet it is, it is, it's as real as the earth and the sky, the sun. It's as real as the people around you. It is, it is totally real. It's just that we haven't yet experienced it. But without being, a, being born again, uh, the Bible says that you were without hope, or before you were born again, you were without hope. Uh, Ephesians 2.12 says, Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. You know, without Christ, you may not have even known how hopeless you were. But praise God, you were born into a living hope. And Peter says, in this, you rejoice, you greatly rejoice. You were born into an inheritance, next. Peter says you were born into an inheritance, You're not only born into a living hope, you were born into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is to be revealed, that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Now, I don't know how Peter could have put any more ironclad assurance on this inheritance than what what he said. Do you? Uh, it, It can never perish, can't spoil. It won't fade away. It's kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of this salvation. So you were born into an inheritance. God has your name in his will. And that will never change. You are in the will. Okay? It's not like, not like you got excluded or left out. You are in the will of of God. Romans 8, 16 and 17 says, The Spirit testifies with our spirit, the Holy Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, heirs also. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. And what do we inherit? You know, the Bible doesn't spell it all out in detail, but what it says in Romans 8 is what we inherit is glory. We inherit the glory that the Father gives to Jesus. And it says if we suffer with him now, which is, that's, the, that's what people were enduring, that Peter was writing, if we suffer with him now, we will be glorified with him later. So, even though I can't describe it all to you, I mean, I can't tell you what you're going to be doing in, when, in heaven in the morning and at noon and the evening. I can't tell you where you're going to travel or what, you're going to, what, what God's going to put you in charge of or how you're going to serve the Lord, although we know we will serve Him. But the one thing we know, it is, it is it's glory. It is, I mean, so much glory. Paul calls it the eternal weight of glory. It's like this massive glory. Everything you ever longed for in your heart is what is waiting for us. So, you have this massive inheritance, this, this weight of glory ahead of you. 
Peter says it can never perish, spoil, or fade away. It is kept in heaven for you. It is not going to disappoint you. It is not going to deteriorate. It is not going to lose its value. It's not like when you get to heaven, you're you're not going to say, is this all there is? Like, that's what people say about this world, this life. Is that, is this all there is? It's not, that's not going to be the way when you get to heaven. I mean, no disappointment there. It's not going to, not, it's not going to be diminished in one bet. You know, you might possibly receive a house as part of an inheritance. I know my, my mom received a, a very, a small house from her, from her, from her dad, um, when she inherited, when she, when he passed away. But if you would receive a house as a part of an inheritance, you know, that house, something could happen to that house. It could burn down. The housing market could diminish its value. The foundation could crumble and it could be worth much less. But nothing like that can, can happen to what God has for you. And you yourself are shielded by God's power until the coming of this salvation. And so it's like God won't let anything happen to your inheritance. He's got it. It's kept in heaven for you. And here's the amazing thing, then. You also are kept by faith through the power of God. He won't let anything happen to you that would keep you from your inheritance. And then verse 6, as I said earlier, is really the, is really the punchline, which we've been applying all along. It's really the, the application. In this, in all these things that we've just talked about, in this, in your salvation, in this, you greatly rejoice, even though your present experience may be pretty rough right now. Even though you might, as Peter says, may have to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. You know, Peter acknowledges the reality of our trials. This is not, this is not denying that life is hard. But the amazing message is that your salvation has sufficient glory to make us greatly rejoice, even now. Now, just a few words in closing here of how, how I think I think help help us get this into our lives. Uh, first, you must view your suffering. Okay, hear me out on this. You must view your suffering in the context of the greatness of your salvation and future glory. And if you think of your suffering all by itself, if you think just about your suffering, okay. You're, you're not going to experience any of this that Peter's been talking about. Okay? Um, we have to view our trials in, in the context or in view of the greatness of our salvation. And so you, you can either go through life thinking, yes, I am saved, but my car is broke down and in the shop. My marriage is struggling. I didn't get that promotion I wanted. The, the weather is lousy, not today, but the weather is lou- lousy. I, I didn't get to do what I wanted today. And then that's your attitude. Yes, I am saved, but. Okay? Or, here's a different perspective. You can say, I am suffering in some very real ways. I may be suffering some things in my home, in my family, at work. But I am on my way to heaven. 
I have this unbelievable inheritance waiting for me. It is so grand and so glorious. And when I stop to consider all that God has in store for me, I can only count my present sufferings as light and small in view of the surpassing weight of glory that is ahead. And that's, that's, that we're supposed to get there, people. We're supposed to get to that place. Uh, yeah, right now. We're supposed to get there right now where, where, we, where we see the weight of glory as so big that all the stuff that we're going through right now looks light, Paul said, is light and small. It's not to minimize the hurts that you're going through, people. I, I empathize. My heart breaks for you. But still... It's, this isn't, we, we don't just have pity for one another. I mean, that's, we do, we have empathy, but that's not all we have to offer each other. We have hope. We have greatly rejoice, we can re- greatly rejoice in our present distress. So your perspective either magnifies the present trials and minif- minimizes the glory of salvation or magnifies the glory of salvation to such a degree that glory that joy is the result. It is possible to have all these things that we've talked about this morning in front of you and yet not be living in great joy and expectation. And, and, and all, all of us, I, I'm probably safe to say that all of us at times aren't living where we need to be in this. Uh, you, might, you might even be able to list all these things off that, you know, you might... You might be able to lick, tick off election, mercy, born again, chosen by God, inheritance in heaven. You might be able to list all those things off, but knowing about these things without rejoicing in them is not really to know them the way God wants you to know them. And hope is, hope is not knowing, okay? Hope is not knowing. It is knowing and rejoicing. So to live in this spiritual optimism, your future inheritance must be regarded as your most valuable possession. You must begin to regard it as a prize beyond all prizes, as a treasure beyond all treasures. And I can only pray this morning that may God give us the eyes to see it that way. May God give us the, the revelation uh, that we need even this morning. You know, if there was an envelope here for each person this morning that had a million dollars in it and it was yours to take home from the service today, you know, it might not remove your present t- trials. You know, you might still have some things that you're dealing with, a difficult situation at work or with your kids. But with that million dollars, you might be able to rejoice even though you had various trials, okay? And what, what, what needs to happen is that we need to see these things that Peter tells us about as far greater blessing than that envelope with a million dollars. And we should should have this sense that the envelope that we've been given to take home is with, with all these things is so great that even though, even though now we are distressed by various trials, we go home from here this morning greatly, rejoicing and again we just we should have this sense of wonder that we are on the verge of glory that we're on our way to heaven and what is 
out in front of us is so grand and so glorious that we rejoice. All right, let's, let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that you want us to have joy. Thank you that you've done everything necessary for us in our salvation to, to make us people who can greatly rejoice, even in the midst of present suffering and trials and disappointments. God, you are so good. And, and I do pray again, I pray just right now, I pray in the, in the name of Jesus Christ and through the power of the Spirit that a spirit of revelation would come upon every heart and mind in this congregation this morning. That you would save people here. That you would reveal to people the glory of salvation. Make Jesus Christ real. The hope, the living hope that we have in Christ so real to us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.